0: All right, good to see you guys. I won't do any dances up here, Steve, um, but you did a good one. And uh, I want to say uh, thank you for being here today. My name is Kyle. I we'll serve as lead pastor here, and uh, it's an honor to be able to present the Word now to you. Uh, so if you're visiting with us, uh, what we've been doing is we've been going through a series called The Big Picture. Now, within the series, what we've been trying to do is observe just the big picture of the Bible what is taking place in Scripture what's happening from beginning to end what's happening from the beginning of time to the end of time right what is God doing and so what we've been saying is that God's story that he is writing currently that he's telling in Scripture and that we see throughout Scripture that we see playing out even in our world today is the story of redemption it's the story of God's people enjoying God's presence within God's place for God's purposes so Uh, And this is what we've been tracking from Genesis 1 to now, where we're going to kind of just look at quick, I hope, overviews of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth to see what was taking place within God's people during those times and on the outside of what's happening there uh, among God's people. And then how was it that God was operating during those moments of of seeming just massive chaos and distress? You'll see more of that kind of come into view as we look at it but all of that really is to ask and answer this question is god good is god good and and so you and i as christians we tend to lean towards the idea that yes god is good we may even say it emphatically god is a good god and we declare it um righteously right we declare it with with great hope but when we look into the world around us and kind of begin to observe things we kind of begin to wonder well wait a minute is god Good. And as we look into scriptures, we might ask the question, is God good? Is what's happening there good? Is this from God's hand? Is it good? And so uh, I want to, from Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, answer that question this way. I do think God is good, as you might imagine. I'll go ahead and put that out in case you were wondering. I do believe God is good, and I want to answer that question. Uh, But here's kind of the big idea that I want to present to you this morning, is that God's goodness goes beyond temporal blessings into eternal redemption. So God's goodness goes beyond temporal blessings. It goes beyond the temporal circumstances, the things that we see on the surface. It goes beyond that. In fact, it's far above that. And God is always dealing in his goodness and his kindness in his faithfulness to covenant, right, to be a covenant God with his people. He's always dealing with eternity in view. And so for us to ask and answer the question, is God good? We have to look and see, is God good eternally? And the answer is yes. But let me pray for us before I get into those books today. And we, we look at the kind of overview of those things. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for these books. We ask now that you be with us as we just kind of fly by them. Lord, uh, would you help us to comprehend some things about your character, some things about our own character and Lord, how those things relate to one another, how it is that you are saving people, how it is that you are redeeming your people. And so, Father, help us to look to you uh, as the only source of goodness in this life. And it's in Christ Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. So again, I'm just asking the question, have you ever questioned God's goodness? Maybe you've done it in tragedy. Maybe something directly affected your own family. Maybe it directly affected your life, some tragic event, and you were forced to ask the question, well, wait a minute, is God good in this moment? Because this seems really bad maybe you just look out into the world and you see turmoil right across the landscape of the world you can turn on the news any channel and at any time and you will see turmoil taking place across the world maybe you just look into the apparent prosperity of wickedness you look upon wicked people and there's a a a general sense of covetousness right of of looking on their lives and thinking man i am striving to follow the lord i'm striving to obey his commands i'm actively working to do those things and I'm not getting the blessings that evil people are getting. I'm not being rewarded in the way that evil people are being rewarded. My life is not as good as that evil person over there. And so we begin to wonder, is God really good? Where's the justice, right? Where is justice? A Frequent questions in apologetics is this question. If God is sovereign, if he rules over all things, if all things come from the hand of God and he is good, then why do bad things happen? Now, the the Base of our questions derived from a limited view of life. It's a, it's a narrow lens view of life. We are zoomed in to just the, the, the little speck within the, the beautiful picture of a, just imagine a stained glass window, right? I think it was Augustine who used this illustration. We look at a stained glass window, and if you look at a stained glass window and it's up here in your face, All you see are just particles and pieces that are different colors, just different colored glass, right? But if you back away far enough from the stained glass window, what comes into view? The picture, right? You begin to see what it is that's taking place. Up close, it looks broken. It looks like it doesn't work together. It looks like it doesn't go together. It's not cohesive in any way. But as you back away and observe it, you begin to see the beautiful picture of what's been done the same is true of life we look at life as though it's a stained glass window sometimes and we will see right here and it looks broken it looks busted it looks like it doesn't go together it looks like it's chaotic and there's no point to it god is looking at our lives he's looking at the history he's looking at eternity as the as the guy who stands thirty thousand foot above that thing right and he sees it perfectly he sees it for all that it is So we're looking through a narrow lens, but what we need to understand, is God good? We need a wide-angle lens. We need a wide-angle view of life. We need to understand what it is that he's doing. If we use this wide-angle lens, we begin to see the eternal redemptive purposes above the temporal ups and downs, and then God's goodness comes into clear focus. We see his hand at work amen many of you can look into your life and say man i've seen moments of chaos i've seen moments of temporal blessing temporal downs right just awful moments but really high moments also but if you examine your life from a 30000 foot view what you begin to see is how god's been using every single one of those moments to make you into the man or the woman that you are right that god's working those things out for your good right and it's in great persecution Within great persecution, not only within the church, but within Paul himself, that Paul writes the letter to the Romans in uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 28, where he says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So God is working all things together for the good of his purposes. He's working all things together for the good of his people, those who love him and are called according to those purposes. Amen? We can trust this. Will Joshua, Judges, and Ruth help us see this Clearly, they help us see how God's concern for eternal goodness or redemption trumps His concern for temporal blessings. All right, so I just want to evaluate kind of God's goodness in a a very general sense in the book of Joshua. Joshua is a book of battles. It's a book of land. It's it's not just any land, though. It's the promised land. It's Canaan, right? God has promised Canaan to the Israelites. Joshua has now taken Moses' place. Moses has passed away. He's gone. Joshua is the new leader. He's God's man. He's been called by God to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land. Now, at first, Israel is obedient to God they spy out the land they send a couple of guys in to spy out the land uh, there's a, a lady there named rahab she's a prostitute but she takes them in uh, she gives them shelter she hides them from the canaanites who want to destroy them and they promise in return to protect her and her family when they come in and destroy the city you'll see that take place uh, kind of here in a moment but that's a, an example of god saving people outside of the israelites right god's goodness flowing into the nations through the israelites so Uh, So Joshua leads them into the land of Canaan, and when they arrive, they circumcise all of those who had not yet been circumcised. So all the children who had been born along this journey who had not been, yet been circumcised received circumcision. This is a way of remembering the covenant that God had made with them, right? They're declaring back to God this covenant that He made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and is now alive within them, that He has been good to them. He's brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey. As they're there, they celebrate the Passover also. They are remembering God. They're looking back and saying, God has been so good to us. In chapter 5, the commander of the Lord's army appears to Joshua. And Joshua notices him and he says, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? The angel of the Lord's army, he says, No, (laughs) but I am the commander for the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua falls down and he worships him. Now the whole point of that was a test. It was a test for Joshua, it was a test for Israel. It wasn't, is this man for us? It was God testing the man saying, is he for us? Or is he going to become our adversary?" Is Israel for us? Are they going to become our adversary? Are they um, in allegiance with God? Chapter 6, Israel takes Jericho. God's favor is on them. But in the midst of that taking of jericho they disobeyed god there by taking for themselves some of the things that had been set aside or devoted to idol worship they begin to hoard those things for themselves and take those things they hide them from so chapter 7 and 8 their next battle at, the, at, at a place called i they lose this battle for their unfaithfulness god punishes them he judges them for their unfaithfulness Joshua is then confronted by God, who then Joshua goes and confronts the man who was responsible for taking the items. This man admits to his sin. He admits to uh, going against what God had commanded, and he is sentenced to death by stoning. Israel repents. God relents of his anger. They go back into Ai, and Ai is defeated. Chapter 9, they go into a place. The Gibeonites come out and meet them. The Gibeonites kind of hide themselves. They tell a lie. They tell them that they're a people on a long journey and that they should, have favor, you know, they should have pity on them, essentially take them in. And so Joshua and the Israelites take them in. Well, then they come to find out they're actually the people of Gibeon. They're the Gibeonites. And they were afraid of Joshua. They were afraid of God. So they give themselves to the Lord without a fight. They become a part of the Israelite people. So again, you see God's goodness on display in His eternal redemption. He is working even in these um, pagan nations. These, these pagan people are coming to God. Chapter 10 and 11, there's a group of Canaanite kings who align together to take out the Israelites. I said, let's all come together. Let's work together. They're becoming large and mighty. They're going to defeat us. And guess what? Israelite run, the Israelite army runs over them easily. They're defeated easily. In chapter 12, we have a list of all of the nations which had been defeated by the hand of the Israelites. All of these Canaanite peoples who have been defeated. Uh, is the, the writer of Joshua here just runs through a list of that. Chapter 13 through 22, we have Joshua dividing up the land among the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 tribes are now receiving all the land of, of Canaan. Now, is that significant or no? yes. Why? Because God had promised what to Abraham? The land of Canaan. He'd promised to give to Abraham the land of Canaan. This is a part of his covenant promises, this land being divvied up among uh, the Israelites. And so it's a fulfillment of what God has done. It's a, it's a look at God's goodness, his faithfulness to Israel, to do exactly what he has said. In chapters 23 and 24, you have Joshua's final words. In, in his first speech that he gives to the Israelites, he demands, he encourages, he commands them, turn from Canaanite gods. Do not be seduced by Canaanite gods or their practices or the way that they live. Turn from that. Obey God and His law. Follow Him. Be faithful to Him. And in the second speech, he kind of lets them know what's on the line. What's on the line if you don't do that? Well, life, an eternal blessing with God, or divine judgment from God's hand, just as you've observed the Canaanite people receiving. It's either or. You will either receive life and blessing with God, or you will receive divine judgment just as the Canaanites had. But you see, Joshua knew God's goodness. He knew it intimately. God had been good to Joshua. He'd been kind to Joshua. He'd worked mightily through Joshua. Joshua knew God's faithfulness. He knew his faithfulness to keep his his word, right? To keep his covenant with the people. He knew that it was important for the people to be faithful to God by keeping his commands, by not going against God, by not rebelling against what God had said. And that if they would do so, that would lead to life. That would lead to eternal redemption with God forever. Now maybe you're wondering because i kind of do as i read through the book of joshua how can we talk about god's goodness and covenant keeping how can we talk about god's goodness in the way that he dealt with the israelites when we see how he deals with the canaanites that they are utterly destroyed by god's command to israel they takes them out why does god declare war on the canaanites well the canaanites were morally corrupt they're morally corrupt and Uh, Particularly, they're sexually corrupt. In Leviticus 18, there's a long list there of their practices. And God is telling the people of Israel, do not, do not adopt this sexual corruption into your own cultural practices. We see in Deuteronomy 12 that the Canaanites also participated in child sacrifices. It was nothing for them to literally burn their sons and daughters in praise of their false gods. This is horrible, right? This is awful moral corruption. These people are um, as depraved as a people can be. And so the command is abstain from that, Israel. Do not become part of that. The judgment is wipe that off the face of the earth because it is not right. It's not good. It is not God's uh, best for the world. And so the Canaanites had this long history of sin against God's holiness. God had been, um, he'd been patient with them for many years. And so the point of destroying them and their gods was really an act of divine judgment against them. And it's a unique moment in human history where the people of God are told to wage war, literal war on people who rebel against God, to destroy them. Uh, But what it is, what it provides for us, though we do not now go into the world and kill unbelievers, right? This is not what we're called to do. But what it does provide for us is a small picture of what that day of final judgment will look like when God does erase evil from the face of the earth amen God's purposes will go on unhindered evil will be purged from the earth only God's people will survive only those who hide themselves in Christ Jesus will make it so another reason that this happened, as I mentioned a moment ago, was Israel is supposed to abstain from their idol making, abstain from their idol worship. Don't join them in the moral corrupted practices. Don't join them in their spiritually corrupted practices, uh, because that would be rebellion against the one true God of Israel, right? Joshua ends then essentially with a question mark. The book of Joshua kind of leaves you on this cliffhanger of what is Israel going to do? Are they going to heed the warnings of Joshua or are they going to go their own way? That gets us into the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, we see uh, just a big, massive highlight reel of Israel's total failure to walk faithfully with God. It's just a highlight reel of it. Joshua urged them to turn from Canaanite gods, but Judges reveals that they turned to Canaanite gods instead. They fully take on the life of the Canaanites. Judges is disturbing, it's violent, it's a tragic tale of how Israel becomes like the Canaanites. It's troubling to see the downward spiral of a nation who says they love God, isn't it? Before Israel had a king, judges governed the tribes of Israel. Not like courtroom judges judge more like a regional kind of tribal chieftain. They were the ones who ruled over these tribes. In chapters 1 and 2, we have Israel immediately, right out of the gate in Judges, failing to drive out the Canaanites. They fail to obey God's command to drive them out of the land. Instead, they move in beside them, and they adopt their religious and moral practices, their cultural practices. The writer describes then this downward spiral of what's going to take place throughout the book. It's sin on Israel's part. It's rebellion against God that leads to their oppression by Canaanites or by... um, their practices, which then leads to repentance and deliverance, typically through a judge, which brings peace, and then you just simply rinse and repeat for the rest of the book. Israel continues to rebel against God. They continue to find themselves in oppression. They continue to to try to bring about peace through repentance and this, this deliverance, and then they sin once more. In chapters 3 through 16, it highlights the corruption of Israel's judges. And it really kind of goes in this progression of pretty good to okay to bad to worst, right? It just gets progressively worse as it goes on. In chapters 3 through 5, it's pretty good. You have a judge named Othaniel, I think, Ehud, and Deborah. Now, the stories there are really epic and bloody, right? If you're a teenage boy, read those, all right? Um, it's, It's enjoyable chapter 6 through 9 we have uh, things are kind of okay there's this guy named Gideon many of you have heard of Gideon Gideon was a cowardly man but there was a moment in his life where he trusted God uh, as he defeats a group of Midianites uh, with uh, just 300 men but the problem with Gideon was he had a nasty temper he murders a bunch of israelites because they won't help him in battles he begins to make it he makes an idol then from the spoils of war from what god had blessed him with he makes this idol and then he leads the israelites to worship the idol gideon was not a good judge chapters 10 through 12 it gets bad you have this guy named uh, jephthah who was more like a, a mafia thug <laughs> He lives in the hills and the elders come to him and ask him to come deliver him, deliver them, to ask for help. So he wins a lot of battles. He leads uh, to them to a lot of wins and battles. But he treats God like a Canaanite God because he doesn't know God. He treats him like a Canaanite God. We know this because he sacrifices his own daughter in worship to God, or so he says shows how far israel has fallen by the end of chapter 12 you're like my goodness what has happened to israel this does not look like the israel i saw in exodus they no longer know the character of their own god which leads them into false worship and deep depravity in chapters 13 through 16 we have the story of samson which is by far the worst of the judges he's sexually immoral he's violent he's arrogant he has no regard for god He deals defeat to the Philistines at one point, but it cost him his life. So how is God good throughout the age of the judges? I want you to remember what I said at the beginning. God's goodness goes beyond temporal blessings into eternal redemption. And Judges, what we have over and again is God using His Spirit to empower these judges who are corrupt to do His work, but that doesn't equal His approval or His endorsement of their human choices. God is committed. What we see in Judges is that God is absolutely committed to saving His people, even when they're rebelling against Him. But all He has to to work with are corrupt judges, and so work with them he does. In chapter 17 through 21, or first of all, that kind of whole section of 3 through 16 shows us how corrupt Israel has gotten, and you can't tell them apart from the Canaanites, especially for the leaders, right? That's just kind of the picture of the leaders. But in 17 through 21, what we get is the corruption of Israel as a whole. You begin to see how awful the people have become. In chapter 17 through 21, we have this repeated phrase of, in those days Israel had no king. Now, in chapter 17 and in chapter 21, which are the bookends of this section, it says this phrase In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Boy, if that is not a picture of the problem of humanity, then I don't know what is. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right. In their own eyes this is our problem today is it not we have no allegiance to a king we align ourselves with lots of little kings but we have no allegiance to the king or we don't see it in our world i should say and so our world does what is right in its own eyes amen pursues the desires of its own heart now israel begins to devour one another they just begin to take each other out they turn on one another there's sexual abuse there's violence it all leads to israel's first civil war and that's the point that's the point of judges israel's self-destruction is a result of their own turning away from god and now they need to be delivered again they need a king but israel has no king to do this at least not yet you see judges has great value as a tragedy you learned about tragedies probably in in literature right in school tragedy uh in, in judges as a tragedy has great value because it's a brilliant picture of the fallen human condition it's a, it's a bright shining picture you can't miss the problem with the human condition Uh, Condition in Judges. It points out our need for a king, capital K, king, who will rescue us from sin and its effects, which are destruction, decay, and death. This is all that sin brings. This is all that rebellion promises to bring to us. Now, on the outside, looking at Judges, it looks as though God has forgotten Israel. They're in really really bad shape they're literally devouring one another from within they've turned against god they've taken on all these other gods they're killing each other however i want you to remember that god's redemptive promise was that out of abraham there would come a great nation right he says greater than the number of the stars in genesis 15. god's goodness goes beyond temporal blessings into eternal redemption and that's where the story begins to take shape this is where we begin to see the arc of what's happening we see that throughout joshua and judges that temporal blessings rise and they fall that god's goodness um sorry not god's goodness but but the temporal blessing Uh, They rise, right? Here's land flowing with milk and honey. Here it is divided up. Here it is God uh, giving you exactly what He said He would give you. And then we see it fall as they do what? Turn against God. Turn to other gods. Begin to practice immorality uh, among one another, destroying one another. Their blessings decrease. Things are taken from them. They suffer oppression. We see that these things rise and fall, but God's redemptive purpose marches forward forward unhindered by man. Amen? It marches forward. It's unhindered by man's rising and following. God is not stopped by man's rebellion. He's not stopped by man's obedience. He is marching forward with his purpose just as he always is. Israel has no king, right? This is where we've left off in in Judges. The people pursue all that their hearts desire. They're doing everything that seems right in their own eyes. They're in a bad place, but within the macro story of Joshua and Judges, within the macro story of Israel's unfaithfulness, there are micro stories of God's faithfulness. Enter the story of Ruth. This is where Ruth fits in. Judges is a tragedy, but Ruth is a work of art that invites us to see how God is at work in the day to day hardships of his people. It invites us to see how God moves. There are three main characters in the book of Ruth. There's a woman named Naomi. She becomes an Israelite widow very quickly in the story. There's a woman named Ruth who becomes a Moabite widow very quickly within the story. And then there's a man named Boaz who is an Israelite farmer. In chapter one, it starts this way. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. So it's happening in the middle of Judges, in the days when the judges ruled. So things are tough. There's a famine in the land. Naomi and her husband and two sons move to Moab. There, her husband dies. Her sons marry Moabite women. And then the sons die also. Naomi says to her daughter and daughters-in-law, which one is named Orpah, which every time I see it, I think it says Oprah, but it's Orpah, Orpah and Ruth. She says i'm going to go back to israel i'm going to go back to my people you two should stay here she's hoping there she can find help right this is part of the cultural practices you'll see as the book takes uh, shape orpah says uh, i'm not going to go so the bible tells us that she returns to her family and it says and to her gods she returns to her family and to her gods ruth says where you go i will go where you stay I will stay. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. It's an amazing act of loyalty to both Naomi and to God. So they returned to Israel. Naomi is flustered by all that has taken place. She is bitter. In fact, she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. I mean, have you ever been so bitter you changed your name to bitter? I haven't, right? I mean, that's bitter, bitter, right? I've been bitter, but that's bitter, bitter, okay? She changes her name um, to Mara. As she's lamenting her fate. Now I want you to remember, right, the, the the grand arc here is that God's goodness goes beyond temporal blessings into what? Eternal redemption, right? This is the thing that God is always after. This is the story of his goodness. Is God good? Yes, because he's always after eternal redemption. Right? And he's working in temporal circumstances to bring about eternal redemption. And that's what the book of Ruth points out. In chapter two, Ruth and Naomi are hungry. Anybody ever been hungry? Yeah, right? They're hungry and they're like, we need food. So Ruth goes out to find food and it's in the middle of the barley harvest. Uh, she's allowed to pick food behind harvesters. This is again, part of the practice. So she can't have the first fruits of it, but she's allowed to go in behind them and pick what's off the ground or what was left on the uh, on the plant, and uh, and so she begins to go and gather food. She just so happens, right? Because it's all coincidence. She just so happen—kidding. She just so happens to pick grain in the field of Boaz, which just so happens to be Naomi's relative, right? So this is gonna—you're gonna begin to understand what that means in a moment if you haven't heard the story. Boaz, this man named Boaz, who's an Israelite farmer, is described as a man of noble character, much like what we saw with Ruth. He's very loyal. He's a man of noble character. He, he is, as you'll see, following God. He notices Ruth. And he shows her a lot of generosity, which was just a way of obeying God's commands. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't attracted to her. That's possible. But he's doing this as a way to obey God's commands. He's showing generosity to the immigrant and to the poor as he was commanded to do. He is impressed, though, by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi as he hears her story. Who is she? Where did she come from? How did she get here? He kind of inquires about her. And as he learns about it, he's impressed by her loyalty. He prays that God would bless her for her boldness. Ruth goes home, Naomi finds out that she's met Boaz, and she is thrilled. Not only is there a lot of food, but she knows that Boaz comes from the family of her husband. He is their family redeemer. Now, a kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer at that time was a cultural practice, uh, and it was one in which you marry, uh, the next in line, the next male in line, would marry the widow and protect the family land. He would take on this as a way to honor the family. So Naomi hopes that there may be a future for her family, yet she ends in chapter 2, it ends with her praising God. In chapter 1, she's bitter so much that she changed her name. In chapter 2, she's praising the Lord at what could be taking shape. So from chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth plot together on how to get Boaz to notice their situation. I love what they do. Ruth puts on her best clothes. She takes off her widow's clothes. She puts on her best clothes, right? She... um, she, she goes out um, in, in a way to approach Boaz to let him know that she is available to be married. Right? She's not a mourning widow. She's available to be married. She finds Boaz asleep. He awakes. He sees her. He's a bit startled by it, but he, he sees her there. She asks him if he will marry her and redeem Naomi's family. Now, men, it's not going to happen that way if you're single, right? This is not the way that it happens anymore. Uh, you need to be a man and ask uh, that woman. right? But the way this was to take place was because of the whole family redeemer thing. It was on them to make this known. It was, it was their role. So he again praises Ruth for her loyalty. Boaz asks her to wait until it can be confirmed before the town elders of the next day. So he's like, I need to bring this before the town elders. We need to make sure there's not another relative. Well, there was another relative. So that relative comes forward and once he learns that he will have to marry a moabite woman he declines he does he's not interested in that but boaz knows her character boaz has come to know this woman he he knows that she's loyal that she has strong character and so boaz is able to um, to marry her all right he marries her the the land is redeemed the family is redeemed right everyone is now taken care of And uh, the story concludes really with kind of a reversal of all the tragedies that took place in chapter one. Ruth is married, she gives birth to a son, which provides Naomi with a family again, right? Everything that had made uh, Naomi bitter in the beginning has been reversed, God has provided. Now, God is mentioned very little in this story. It's not that they don't talk about God. You just don't see God's hand like explicitly moving parts or doing things like we've seen throughout the Bible thus far where he's parting waters and appearing in clouds uh, and and with fire from heaven, right? We're not seeing God in that way. It's much more uh, mundane or behind the scenes, you might say. So the story concludes with this reversal. God's mentioned very little. It appears uh, that he's working behind the scenes, but make no mistake, it is God who restores Naomi and her family. He does it through Ruth and Boaz's loyalty. But the real kicker, that the real special part of this story is this. Ruth's son, Obed, is the grandfather to King David. Ruth's son, Obed, is the grandfather to King David. Now, remember back, the way when we begin the series right because that's how this works in genesis chapter 3 we had the promise from god to the serpent through the woman to what to crush the head of the serpent through her offspring right that god was going to take care of the serpent through the offspring guess what is happening through this we've been tracking the offspring of Eve, right? And so now we have the offspring of Eve coming through this line of Seth, now through this line of of Abraham, which leads through this line of uh, Boaz and Obed is born, right? And Obed becomes the king uh, sorry, the grandfather to King David. Israel is without a king. God's chosen king is King David. They will uh, again do what Israel does. They'll go against God's command and they'll establish for themselves their own king, Saul, and that doesn't go very well for them. But King David takes rule. And King David is, um, establishes the line of the, the Davidic kings, right? How many of you know who comes from the Davidic king line? Jesus, Amen. If you look at Matthew chapter one, you can track this genealogy in Matthew chapter one uh, from, Obed, or from Ruth to Obed to uh, Jesus uh, to King David to Jesus. All right, so we have the family line being established here. That in the chaos of the world, in the time where the judges ruled, right in the time where the judges brought chaos, is how it should be worded. You have God ordering redemption. You have God tracking still his story of redemption throughout his world throughout history he is making this take place and so It's from the line of David that we get Jesus Christ, the King of kings. The seed of the woman that will crush the serpent continues unhindered by man's evil ways. Jesus will become the redeemer of the world. He brings near those who were once far off, alienated from God's presence, just as Ruth was, just as the Gibeonites were, just as Rahab was. This is the work of God in redeeming the world. Amen? God's grand story of redemption for the whole world goes through this family line, which appears at first to just be a story of mundane nature. But that's exactly how God works. When we look into a world that is full of chaos, we look into a world that seems like it's fallen apart at the seams, we need to know beyond the shadow of a doubt and trust, because this is exactly how God works, that God is at work. Amen? Amen that He's ordering things even in the chaos, that He's moving things even in the chaos, even as our doubts and our fears and our worries are kind of materialized before our eyes in whatever it is we're facing. We can trust that God is the God of covenants, that He's keeping steadfast covenant with His people, that He is ever faithful, abounding in love. Amen? We can trust that this is the god whom we serve no matter what's taking place in the world no matter what's taking place in our own lives at kind of a macro level or micro level this is how god works So in these three books, we see that God's goodness goes beyond temporal blessings into eternal redemption, and that's the point of the story of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. That's kind of the overarching theme of what's taking place in those three books. But what does it mean for us? All right, Because so far what we've done is really looked heavily at what it meant for them and how that's taken place and and what it's brought about, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the ultimate blessing what does it mean for us what well, means that you and i must learn to look beyond temporal blessings and pleasures and look to the eternal redemption found only in christ jesus to steady our hearts on it israel had no king and they did all that their hearts desired and withhold anything from their eyes They took everything as their own. Whatever they saw that they liked, they took. Whatever they coveted, they took. Whatever blessing they thought the Canaanites enjoyed, they took it for themselves. They looked upon an unruly people and they said, I want that. That's a heart that is far from God. When our hearts and our minds look upon the world and we see temporal pleasures that they're enjoying and we say, man, I wish I could have that. We have disgraced the name of God with our coveting. Right? We have said that whatever that thing is that our eyes behold, maybe it's a person, maybe it's money, maybe it's a job, Maybe it's something else. What we're saying is that that thing is more valuable to me than the living God. Let us not do that. Don't do that. When we read this in Judges, that Israel had no king and they did all that their hearts desired, that's really a summary sentence for the indictment in Romans 1 against the world. In romans 1 paul is writing and he's explaining what happened in the world why has the world gone mad and this is what he says he said god gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about god for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever What's he saying? They worshipped other gods, right? They worshipped the creature. They made for themselves idols. They took idols. They gave themselves up to the depravity of their own hearts. Whatever their eyes desired, they took of. Immediately following that, the people descend into major sexual immorality, which always follows a people who have turned away from God. Right? And so what happens is Paul is writing. He's saying, don't do this. Don't worship creature rather than the Creator. Now the warning is this. When we look out onto people who are worshiping creature rather than the Creator, we have the potential to envy them. To covet what seems like blessedness. What seems like pleasure. It may seem like blessing. It may seem like pleasure when the wicked are enjoying all that their hearts desire. But do not be fooled and do not be seduced by that. Because what's actually happening, this is what Paul's saying, what's actually happening is it's the very height, it's the pinnacle of God's judgment for them while they remain on earth. Do you see that? Paul is saying God gave them up to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the mind, the pride of life as John words it in 1 John 3, right? God gave them up to these things because that's what they desired. That's all that they would run after. They kept rebelling against him. So he just just removes that hedge of protection, essentially, right? That, that hand over them and lets them run headlong into their own depravity. It's what they wanted. And what he's saying here is God's people have looked from eternity past until Christ returns. God's people have been guilty of looking at such people and saying, golly, I wish that was my life. And we ought to lament, not covet their depravity. It's worthy of lament. It's worthy of many tears. It's worthy of action, friends. When I say it's worthy of action, I have a specific action in mind. It's worthy of sharing the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ with them, amen? We lament the fruit of their wickedness. We do not covet the fruit of their wickedness. They are hopeless without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You are not hopeless. You should not covet their depravity. You have the blessing of promise that's yours. You have the hope Of heaven you have the hope of eternal life which is yours in Christ Jesus your Lord there is no reason for you to ever look upon the world and say I want that ever to do so is an act of rebellion it's an act of treason against God and it's worthy of the highest punishment God have mercy God save us amen Israel was guilty of such foolishness they're guilty of it. They didn't resolve to steady their affections on the Creator. They resolved to say, what they have, I want. They were easily seduced by the wickedness of the Canaanites. And I'm telling you, do not be easily seduced. We must not fight. Now, in light of the election, I want to make this point, because who knows what's going to actually happen in the remainder of this, right? I, I don't think it's over yet. But who knows what transpires, okay? Okay in the light of that what i want to encourage your heart with as my brothers and sisters is this we do not fight for an elephant we fight for the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world amen more important than voting for christian values which is important and we should vote for such things we should exercise our right to vote But more important than voting for Christian values is the need that people have for a new heart. A heart in which God writes those values upon that heart. That is what Israel and the Canaanites needed in their day, and it's what we need in our day. More men and women who have the law of God written upon their hearts by the Spirit of the living God. Amen? Who will give themselves to Him. Christians are to glorify God in the world, not to join the world in its glorifying of self. And until Christ returns, there will be afflictions that we suffer as Christians. Amen? You will suffer hardship. You will suffer affliction. It will be difficult at times to serve Christ in your workplaces, in your schools, in your homes, in public. It might become increasingly difficult. But God has not forgotten us. Amen? Let me say it again and you get to amen with a little more gusto, right? God has not forgotten us. Amen. Amen. He is working in the mundane and the ordinary. He's working in the tragedy. He's working when we think, man, where in the world is he? He's at work. Amen? He's moving on the hearts and minds of his people. And until Christ returns, there will be afflictions that we suffer at the hand of the enemy. The enemy is not those unbelievers. The enemy is the one guiding those unbelievers. Amen? Unbelievers are not our enemy. They're blinded. They don't know any better. They're the ones that we cry over. That we hope that the Lord might use us to bring about salvation or use His people to bring about salvation in their life. But make no bones about it. The enemy is trying to steal, kill, and destroy. This is what he does according to John 10.10. 10. But I say to you, in the words of Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Don't trade it for the things of the world. Amen? It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, that temporal stuff, but we look to the things that are unseen. For the things that we see are transient, they're moving, they're temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. It's in those unseen things that we find God's goodness. Amen? This is where we see that God is good. God is good, and He is eternally good, and He is accomplishing the plan of redemption. His story is unfolding still today. He is not frustrated by the works or the hands of evil men and women. Evil actions are working together. Even those things are working together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Look no further than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is the one truly evil act to take place. Amen? It's the crucifixion of Christ. How can that be evil? Well, because it was the only The only good man to walk the face of the earth was crucified. He was innocent. He's not guilty. He should not have been killed, right? But he chose to give his life up that we might have life in him. And so when I say that even bad things are working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, I can look no further than the crucifixion of Christ and see it. Because it says in Acts chapter 2 that it was the hands of lawless men who brought about what God had ordained, which was to, for his son to be killed for our sake. So God is, God is using even the actions of evil man to bring about good in the world. Amen? He's not causing the evil per se, but he's bringing it about. In such, or he's ordaining it in such a way that it can be used to bring about good in the lives of people. We can trust that God is good. By faith in Jesus, you can be saved. By faith in Jesus, you can have new life. By faith in Jesus, you can press on. So I encourage you, march on. Press on into the goodness of the Lord. You can fight forward. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, we love You. We thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You for this encouragement we have in Your Word to trust You, to see that You are good and that You are moving, that Your eternal redemption cannot be stopped, cannot be overcome by the evil of this world. But God, we look out into our world and we see evil. We see men and women, boys and girls, who need Jesus as Lord. Father, would you create in us a burden for lost people? Lord, help us to see them as they truly are, as those who are lost, not as as our enemies, Lord. Help us not to regard them according to the flesh, but to regard them as spiritual beings, Lord, people who are in need of a Savior. Father, burden us for that, and then I pray, Lord, that you would open a door of opportunity for us to minister the Word right here in Columbia County. Lord, to all who are lost, to those who don't know you. Father, I pray as we've seen this truth of just your goodness at work in our lives, Lord, would you help us to trust that? Just the events of the last week, the uh, not, not only on a personal level, Lord, for, for each person here, but just even globally, Lord, what we've observed, what we've seen even this year. My goodness. It's easy for us to just begin to kind of doubt, to have our hearts um, become distrusting of you. Let our hearts wonder, Lord. Lord. God, would you center us us on the cross of Christ that we look there and we see the eternal redemption of God at work. We see you saving your people, that we might enjoy your presence within your place for your purpose. Father, help us to resolve in our hearts and minds to trust you to follow you, to know you intimately, to see that you are good. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you for your work in our lives. God, forgive us when we doubt. Forgive us when we fear and when we worry. Help us, Lord, to to take all of those cares, all of those things straight to you in prayer. We might have our burdens relieved. We love you. We thank you for caring for us on an intimate, micro level. For being so woven into our lives. We love you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.